Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. What a powerful, powerful start to this service. And uh, we're going to continue with this theme in the second part on uh, Israel, and specifically today, the rebirth of Israel. Uh, let's bow for prayer one more time. Let's just ask, invite the Holy Spirit to speak through the message, but also in our prayer, say to him that we choose to receive what he, what he gives us and to engage in the service. Amen? Lord, thank you uh, for this time. Thank you for your eternal word. Thank you that it not only speaks to us as individuals each day, and we do thank you for that, but thank you that it also outlines your eternal plan for the salvation of the world. And so today, Lord, we choose to submit to you and to your word, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to give us attentive hearts, and we choose to engage with you as you speak. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed by saying, Amen. Amen. Last week we began by saying, God called a Semite, Abraham of Ur. And by the way, if you haven't seen the, the or you, you haven't watched the, or listened to the first uh, message, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, because it lays a foundation for what we're going to say today and then next week as well. And God called a Semite from Shem, Abraham of Ur, to go to, the, to Canaan where he would make a great nation of them so that they could be a, what? Blessing to the nations. That's the whole purpose of Israel, that they would be a blessing to the nations. And so uh, God gave, us, gave them five basic covenants. The first one was the Edenic or Adamic, whichever you prefer, in which he said he was going to send a seed of a woman who was going to crush the serpent and his seed. And uh, the second one was the Abrahamic covenant. And he also, uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, he also said that there, that there was going to be a seed who is going to come, so he reiterated that promise. But he also said to Abraham, of your descendants, I'm going to make a great nation. And he said, I'm going to give you land. In fact, I want you to go to the place that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you that land. When he got there, he actually told him to stand and take a look around, and he said, everything that you see, I'm going to give you, the land. And he said, I'm going to bless the nations through you. And those who bless you will be what? And those who curse you will be cursed. And uh, therein lies the history of the world. Then came the Mosaic Covenant. We're going to come back to that today. I said we would. Then was the Davidic Covenant. And he added another promise. He said, I'm going to give you an eternal king a dynasty of kings is going to come from David, and he's going to sit on David's, on this dynasty is going to sit on David's throne. Of course, it got cut off at the end of uh, 20 kings, Jehoiakim or um, 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 Jeconiah, there's alternate names for him. 
it was cut off and that king still isn't sitting on David's throne. But then the Magi came and they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And we'll be talking about that very shortly. And then came the new covenant or the renewed covenant that was given to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They all reiterated the aspects of the new covenant that uh, God would forgive his people, that they would have receptive hearts. By the way, the, the new covenant was made with the house, uh, the new covenant was not made with the church. Is this misconception that it was made with the church? It was not made with the church. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34, he made it with the house of Judah, and with, which is the southern kingdom, and with the house of Israel, which was the northern kingdom. And as Pastor Stephan correctly indicated before, we got grafted into those promises. Amen? But the new covenant was made with the house of Israel. And he said, I'm going to give you receptive hearts, flesh, not stone. I'm going to give you the spirit to obey. And eventually all Israel will be saved. That's, uh, those are the promises. And they have been completed partially. So how do we know that God will fulfill them? Well, we said last week that, number one, the promises that we just went through here are, number one, what? They're unconditional. The second thing we learned was that they are? They are eternal. The third thing we learned was that this is how he always keeps his promises. This is how we know that he's going to fulfill these promises. His promises are partially fulfilled already, so we can expect that they will be completely fulfilled, because God never lies. And, promise, and the promises were literally fulfilled. They weren't allegorically fulfilled, not in a spiritual sense. They were literally fulfilled. They didn't go into a spiritual kind of promised land. The nation wasn't a spiritual uh, nation. It was a real nation. Amen? And so we can expect that the fulfillment is going to be literal as well. So for example, Jacob, who was renamed as what? Israel, had 12 sons, and they went to Egypt during a famine, as we talked about. They were enslaved for how many years? 400 years. Very good. And they multiplied greatly. And that's where you have the stories of the midwives and, and all of that, right? And uh, then God called Moses to lead them out of Egypt back to the promised land. It was also called Canaan because the Canaanites were, were living there. And after 10 devastating plagues, Pharaoh and the Egyptians let them go. And uh, then God brought them together at a mountain called what? Mount Sinai. And he constituted them a nation at Mount Sinai. He gave them the law, civil laws, spiritual laws, the Ten Commandments. He gave them the law. And, um, and they were born a nation at Sinai. And then under the command of Joshua, some 38 years later, a total of 40 years, they entered the promised land, crossed the Jordan, and entered the promised land. Now, 
We're going to go back and talk about the curses of the Mosaic Covenant for a moment because everything that we're discussing affects what's going on in Israel today. These covenants are live, including the Mosaic Covenant. There was a problem. The Mosaic Covenant, these other, these other promises, these nine that we just went through, they were unconditional. They were what? They were unconditional. However, the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. It said that if the Israelites didn't keep God's laws, instead of blessing, they would experience and suffer what? Curses. And they would be thrown out of the land. So we're going to read this passage together out of Deuteronomy, which is written by who? Moses. This is coming out of the time of Moses. Moses was a great prophet. And we're going to read this together, all right? And here's the curse that's going to take place if they worship other gods, if they turn from God, then this is what's going to happen to them. This is what Moses said. So let's read together. Here we go. All its soil will be a burning waste of sulfur and salt, unsown, unproductive, and no plant growing on it, just like the destruction of Sodom. So all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land? And the people will answer, it is because they abandoned the what? Okay, just stop for a moment. Because they abandoned what? The covenant. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant. And it was, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me and follow other gods, then you'll experience what? Curses. And so he says, this is what's going to happen. And when, when the other nations will watch me interacting with you, and they see that, they will say, why has God done this to Israel? And the answer will be, because they abandoned the covenant, the conditional Mosaic covenant. Okay, so we'll keep on going, uh, starting with which he made. Here we go which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods. Therefore, he brought upon it every curse written in this book. The Lord uprooted them from this land in his anger, rage, and great wrath, and he cast them out into another land. Now, at the same time that this... that that Moses pronounced this, and, the, and he said to the Israelites, he said, do you get it? And the Israelites said, yeah, we get it. Do you promise to follow the Lord? And they said, yes, we will, with all our heart. Did they? No. But notice what Leviticus, is a, there's a powerful nugget here in Leviticus chapter 26. Who wrote Leviticus? Same person. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five, that means five, first five books written by Moses, also called Torah. And um, this is what he said, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, 
I will what? I will not reject them. Why are they in the land of their enemies? Because they broke the, the covenant. Okay? Those other pieces are unconditional, but their experience or participation in those things are conditional. Just, just watch in a moment. That explains some of the strange things that are going on. I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my what? Covenant. All, the, the Abrahamic covenant. And then later the Davidic covenant and stuff. I'm still going to keep those promises, he's saying. So on the one hand, you're not experiencing, but on the other hand, this will still happen to Israel. God's going to make it happen. That's what he's saying. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their who? Ancestors. He's talking about the Abrahamic covenant there. So if Israel abandons the covenant and serves other gods, God will discipline her and send her into exile. Those are the curses of the Mosaic covenant. But even in exile, God will remember his covenant promises and bring her back again and fulfill his purposes of blessing the nations. And we're going to see that, that this is exactly what happened. All right? So, uh, so under the period of the judges, you've got this back and forth kind of stuff. They would abandon the, the Mosaic Covenant. They would, not, they would follow other gods. And then, and then uh, they would finally repent and turn back to God. And then God would send them what? Judges or deliverers to bring them back, right? And that went on for about a period of about maybe 400 years or something like that. Anyway, then came the first king. Who was the first king? Saul. Who was the second king? David, and who is the third king? Solomon. Very good. You know your Bible. You must have a good pastor here. <laughs> Due to Solomon's great sins of idolatry, God split the nation into two parts. Israel in the north, sometimes also called Ephraim, or the northern kingdom. And I think, uh, I think it's coming up here. Uh, two parts. Yep, there it is. You can, you can see it. You see the green and the blue? So you've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And uh, Judah in the south. Only two tribes. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And, uh, and uh, sometimes called Joseph as well. You'll sometimes see it referred to that. Or the southern kingdom. So three different names for each one of them. And they were split. That was part of the Mosaic curses. And uh, the 19 kings of the northern kingdom were all evil, so in 722 they were destroyed by the Assyrians and exiled. They were taken uh, out and they were never seen again. Those 10 tribes, they were gone. And they were exiled. Of the 20 kings of the southern kingdom, 14 were evil and only 6 were good. And of those 6, only 2 were said to be really good. And the others were so-so. And so finally, by 586 BC, the southern kingdom, maybe 125 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah also went into captivity, and they went into captivity where? Babylon, yes. 
So the northern kingdom was spread all over the place and they were assimilated with the Assyrians all over the place and they were later they were called Samaritans because they had mixed blood because they were assimilated. That was a that was something that the Assyrians did intentionally. It was one of their policies. And uh, so this was because of the Mosaic curses, just like God said. But God unconditionally determined to bring a remnant back from Babylon for his purposes. So after how many years did they come back from Babylon? Seventy years. Seventy years later, Jeremiah said it's going to happen. Daniel was in exile in Babylon. So was Ezekiel. And, and Daniel's reading his... Jeremiah's prophecies, and he says, it's time to come back, Lord. Answer, and he began to pray, Lord, you promised this, that in 70 years we'd come back. And of course, then Isaiah had predicted already that Cyrus would, uh, would say that they could go back, give him permission, and a small remnant came back. It wasn't all the captives. Many of them just stayed. And a small remnant came back. 538 uh, B.C., uh, Cyrus decreed that they could. So, here's my question. Why did God bring them back? That's the question. It was a conditional, the mosaic thing. If they were going to participate in it, and they were going to experience it, then they were going to have to obey. And, and by the way, here, just time out here for a second. I just feel like I should explain something here. I think I have time. Here, let's just try some. I'm going to ask you a question here. When God said he was going to take them out of Egypt into the promised land, did he get them into the promised land? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah, the answer is resoundingly, yes, he did. Here's my second question. Did everybody in Israel get into the promised land? Yes or no? The answer is no. You see? The uh, unconditionally, God made a promise to the nation. You are going into the promised land. I'll get you there. But whether individuals or a particular gener generation are going to experience those blessings and those promises depends on whether they participate in and they believe God and love him. Is that true? Yeah, that's the right answer. So you have, you have the unconditional promise. God got them there, but only Joshua and, and uh, Caleb and the families and then the next generation. The rest all died in the 38 years in the, in the wilderness. Same thing here. God is working out his purposes on the one hand, but he's disciplining individuals or a generation that is not listening to him. So God always accomplishes the purposes which he promises unconditionally. Is that true? Yeah. Okay, we'll keep on going. But why did God bring them back? So they could bless the nations. Guess what hadn't happened in 538 B.C. yet? What? The Savior hadn't been born. Is that true? There had to be a nation for the Savior to be born. The scriptures weren't all written. The church hadn't been born. God still had a purpose for Israel. And so, though there was disobedience here and he was disciplining him, and by the way, when they came back, do you know what was the main purpose for which they went into exile? 
idolatry. If you read the stories, just reread the stories, you recall it. What was the problem? Constant idolatry. And he sent them, uh, he sent them into exile. Idolatry was never again an issue for Israel. Isn't that something? And then God brought them back for the purposes, and part of the purposes was um, to give the world a Savior, Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? So he, he wasn't finished with them yet. They didn't return as a nation, however, but as a province, first of the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. They just had a short little period where they were under the Maccabees where they had some independence. But other than that, they never were a nation again until 1948. Jesus predicted that Israel would be destroyed on Palm Sunday, Five days before Jesus was crucified, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey as Israel's king, but the leaders rejected him, remember, of the nation. So on Wednesday, two days before his crucifixion, Jesus was sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he was teaching them about what would happen to Jerusalem in the near future and about the signs of his return. Look what he said would happen to Jerusalem or to the nation of Israel. This is what he says in Luke chapter 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that her desolation is near. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles. So 40 years later, in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. 48, uh, 40, just 40 years later. In fact, John, who writes the Revelation, wrote that after that happened. Uh, Paul died uh, before that happened, maybe three years before that, but Jerusalem was raised to the ground by the Romans. The temple was burnt, just like Jesus said it would, in a final uprising in 132 A.D., infuriated the Romans, and this time they crucified many Jews and enslaved thousands of others. Thousands fled and spread through the nations, and the Roman emperor Hadrian made it a crime for any Jew to enter the city, and uh, he renamed the entire province, because remember, it wasn't a nation at, at that time anymore, he renamed it Palestine uh, as an insult to the Jews because it means Philistines, who were the Jews' ancient enemies. And by the way, they weren't even in existence at that time anymore. They, they were gone historically. And he did that, and he did it as an insult, but he also did it, he renamed Jerusalem. I didn't put that in here, but he renamed Jerusalem. He, he renamed everything so that Israel would be forgotten. He, he had had enough of them. They would be forgotten, they would be gone. And that would be the end of them. So when the Jews began to emigrate in, in 1881 back to Israel, the land of Israel was a wasteland unwanted by anyone else. 
Well, there were prophecies that Israel would come back to life. There, in fact, the Old Testament is packed with prophecies. We'll just look at a, uh, at a sampling. Isaiah said it. In Isaiah chapter 11, he said, In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a uh, what? A uh, what? A second time. The first time was the Babylonian return. The second time is after the, um, the, exile, the Roman exile, you know, where they were gone for over 1,900 years. To reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, lower Egypt, that's south. Remember what I showed you on the map before, what we showed you on the map? They were going north. But here it says he's bringing them back from lower Egypt, upper Egypt, Cush, which is Sudan, from Elam, which is south Iran, from Babylonia, from Hamath, which is very near there, and from the islands of the Mediterranean, so way to the west. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of what? Israel. And he will assemble the scattered people of? Judah. That's the northern kingdom and that's the southern kingdom. Did that happen if, when they returned from the Babylonian exile? No. They only, only the ones from the southern kingdom came back. Not the northern kingdom. They didn't come back. Only from Judah, not from Israel. Remember I said there, there was different names for them? And, uh, and, they didn't, and they only came back from Babylon. They didn't come back from the nations, or the north and the west and the, and the south. They, they only came back from Babylon. From the four quarters of the earth. And Ezekiel prophesied the same thing. I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to... And you will come to... Right. And I want you to read the rest of it with me. So here we go. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We are cut off. In other words, we're not a nation. We're not a people anymore. Our hope is gone. Continue with verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves, bring you up from them, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And 40 years before Israel would be destroyed by the Romans and dispersed for 1,900 years, Jesus predicted their return. In the very same passage that we just read out of Luke, he predicted it, but just in the next line, which I omitted. And Jerusalem will be trodden down or trampled down by the Gentiles until the time times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus said that Jerusalem would cease to exist as a geopolitical entity until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, implying then she would exist again. Jesus was saying that Israel would exist as a geopolitical entity again. So how did God do it? That's what we want to know, right? How did he do it? 
Well, do you remember when, uh, when God promised Abram's descendants that, uh, you know, that his descendants would become a nation and that God would take them to the promised land? God orchestrated a whole bunch of circumstances to make that come together. Isn't that true? Just say yes. Yeah, the right answer is yes. It's either Jesus or yes. <laughs> All right? I just wrote down 10 circumstances really quickly. Remember Joseph's, uh, Joseph's God dream about the sun and the moon and stars and how they bow down? You remember that? Who orchestrated that, ma'am? No. And then uh, the brothers sold him into slavery. That's part of the story. How about the false accusation of Potiphar's wife, which put him in prison? And when he was in prison, then that led to him being able to interpret two dreams for the butler and the baker. One died, one lived. And two years later, the, uh, he, uh, he told Pharaoh, when, when God gave Pharaoh dream, uh, a dream, or two dreams, I should say, uh, then he interpreted them, right? And uh, he became second to Pharaoh. And then they began to multiply, and there's the story of the midwives. And then there's the story of Moses' birth. Do you remember all these stories? They're amazing stories. And then there were the ten plagues, and then they were driven out by Pharaoh with great possessions after the sacrifice of the, of the lamb. Do you remember that? I mean, we just listed about 10 circumstances that God orchestrated. These aren't just standalone stories. These are all stories that are woven together into a narrative that demonstrate that God orchestrated this entire thing. Amen? And Israel was born a nation because God had said she would, be, she would come into existence and would be born a nation. Amen? That's why. And he worked all these circumstances, which is absolutely incredible. It's an incredible story of, God, uh, of Israel's birth. But God also orchestrated many details of Israel's rebirth. Do you want to hear a few of those stories? Good. Just say yes by faith. <laughs> First of all, there were the pogroms of uh, the Russian pogroms. Now, for those of you, the reason I kept that word there, it, but it just means like persecution, genocide, massacres, all that kind of stuff. But the reason I kept that is so that if you're, if you're going and looking it up, then uh, it's pogroms is the word that they're using. But in 1827... The Russian Tsar Nicholas I declared he would either convert the Jews to Russian Orthodoxy, drive them out, or kill them through conscription. And the, and the assass assassination of his son, Tsar Alexander II, in 1881, was blamed on the Jews, which ignited the Kiev-Ukraine pogrom. It was one of the three greatest pogroms. And that's what began the emigration of Jews to Israel. So they fled Russia, some to, many to America, and some to Palestine. Then there was a second circumstance. In 1894, a Jewish reporter from Vienna covered a story in France about a Jewish soldier in France who was falsely accused of treason because he was Jewish, and a wave of anti-Semitism 
ensued. This Viennese reporter had believed that Jewish people would assimilate into the nations. That would be the best way, just become like everybody else. That's what he believed. But as this reporter watched the crowds shouting death to Jews, his life instantly changed. He had a vision that the future of the Jewish people was in their own land as a nation again, and his name was Theodore Herzl. There's many tremendous stories about this man. He started a movement called Zionism, which simply means the Jewish people have a right to go back to their land in Zion. That's all it means. In 1897, he convened the first Zionist Congress in uh, Switzerland, Basel, Switzerland, towards the rebuilding of a nation that didn't even exist. In two, there were 208 delegates there. That was in 1897. Remember, she was only born 50 years later. And he made a prophecy saying, whether now or in 50 years, it will happen. And in 1947, 50 years later, the UN voted for it. Now, when Herzl was a boy, he had a dream at night. He said he saw Messiah. And Messiah said to another in the dream, this is the boy we've been waiting for. Further, he said to Herzl in the dream, tell my people that I'm coming soon. Okay, this is another circumstance. Let's look at another one. There's a story of, in the years leading up to all this, the British Empire had experienced spiritual revival. They loved the Bible. The Jewish people, they studied prophecies that the Jewish people would return to the land. And there was a little boy who was taught by his mother how to pray. And she would pray with him every night. And they would end their prayers at the end with a prayer for the people of Jesus. Lord, restore your ancient people back to their homeland. Well, this little boy grew up, joined the army, rose through the ranks, became a general of the British Army, and his name was General Edmund Allenby. And in World War I, the one the British put in charge of taking the land of Palestine from the Turkish uh, Muslim Empire was this little boy who had prayed for Israel. Allenby carried with him a Bible which it is said he used to plan his strategy, and he neared the land. And as he neared the land, it is said that Muslim fighters fled. They had mistaken his name Allenby for Allah Navi, which means prophet of Allah, who is bringing judgment. So they fled. <laughs> and when Allenby came to Jerusalem, he got off his horse. When I was. Uh, you know, some of these stories, remember when I was studying, I, had, I took a short course in, in Israel, and uh, so some of these you've, you've perhaps heard too when you've gone to Israel or something, but he got off his horse, entered the gates on foot, and he said, I will not enter the city riding a horse when my Lord entered on a donkey. That's how he loved the Lord. And Palestine was in the hands of the British Empire. Through that, the Muslim Turks would never—the uh, Muslim Turks would never have given the land or of Palestine back to the Jews. There's a, here's a fourth one. There's a man by the name of Chaim Weizmann. 
During World War I, Britain had trouble producing chemical weapons. Man was put in charge of their laboratories, and he figured out a new way to produce acetone, which helped save the British Empire in the war, and he earned the gratitude of the British leaders at the end of the war. And they asked him at the end of the war, what do you want for your contribution to the, to the war effort? And he happened to be Jewish, and happened to be a key leader in the Zionist movement, and he asked, uh, so when he was asked by the foreign secretary, Arthur Balfour, what he wanted, and Balfour, by the way, was his friend, he said, I want a national home for my people. And so in 1917, Lord Balfour wrote a letter, which is famously called, and you've probably heard of it before, the Balfour Declaration, stating that the British Empire favored a Jewish homeland in Palestine, and that opened the doors for Jewish emigration back into Israel. Here's another one. In World War II, the Holocaust engulfed Europe, killing six million Jews. Meanwhile, the British foreign uh, uh, British foreign policy shifted against the Jews because they didn't want to offend the Arabs. So they blockaded Holocaust survivors from entering Palestine. So first they opened the doors, but then now they closed the doors. And many of you will know some of the stories, the horrific stories. They stopped the ships, sometimes even sinking them. One boat, the Exodus, approached the coast of Israel on, uh, in 1947. It was rammed boarded by British officers and over 4,000 pass passengers, Jewish passengers, refugees, fleeing the Holocaust, had to go back to France. That wasn't the worst of it. The British even took them back to Germany, the land of, their, of the Holocaust. And that was a public relations disaster from the, for the British, which God Almighty was superintending from above, as we'll, and soon after, the British had had enough of trying to figure out the Palestine problem, and they handed over the whole Palestine portfolio to a newly created body called the United Nations. It was just in, it, it was just alive for maybe uh, three years at that point, uh, I think. By the way, a time out here for a second. I'm not just picking on the Brits here or anybody else. Um, I'll never forget being at the Yed Vashem Holocaust Museum in, in Israel and reading a lot of these things, but the uh, it was there that I first read about the ship called the St. Louis. And refugees, in 1939, Hitler came to power in 1933, Kristallnacht had already t taken place, and, uh, and the Jews were fleeing already. Nine, oh, 907, I think it was 907, Jewish refugees boarded this ship called the St. Louis, and they tried to enter Cuba. Cuba rejected them. Then they went to the U.S. And under Franklin Roosevelt, Roosevelt the U.S. rejected them, and believe it or not, they came to Canada. And under Prime Minister Mackenzie King, the Canadian government and the Canadian, uh, the, the nation of Canada rejected them. And this ship went back to 
uh, went back to Germany, and about 250 of them perished in concentration camps. So <laughs> there's blood all over the place. I'm not pointing at a specific country or nation or anything like this. So it was a public relations disaster for the British. They gave it to the UN. And in November 1947, 50 years from the time Herzl said it would happen, the UN took up a vote to partition the land between the Arabs and the Jews. The Jews accepted the partition, though they didn't particularly like it. And the Arabs rejected it, the Arab nations. And because the Soviets, now listen to this, Israel's arch enemy, the Soviets, under Stalin, wanted the British out, Stalin ordered the satellite countries to vote for the Jews to gain nationhood. And in November, on November 29th, 1947, the UN voted. Ten nations abstained, 13 voted against, and 33 nations voted for. I, so I never hear in the news reports today anything about the, the UN. That was a decision made by the world. Amen? That, it was. All I ever hear about is how they came and took the land back. Actually not. The world voted on it. And the Soviets and the biggest countries, the most powerful countries, voted for it. And they said it would happen, that was in November uh, 1947, they said that Israel would be able to have that land as a state in May 1948, when the British mandate would officially come to an end. And then, <clears throat> there's another story. There's a humble man in Midwest America. He joined the U.S. Army, became a lifelong friend uh, with a Jewish man named Eddie Jacobson. This man would go into public life, became a judge and a senator, and in World War II, Franklin Roosevelt, who I mentioned before, who was the president of the U.S., assured Saudi Arabia that the U.S. wouldn't let anything happen in Israel until, uh, unless it was approved by the Arab nations. Had Roosevelt lived, we don't know, but he might have said no to Israeli statehood, but we'll never know because shortly after writing that letter, he died. But the year before that, he had chosen a new vice president, a senator from the Midwest who happened to be the friend of this Jew, and his name was Harry Truman. Harry Truman happened to be the head of the world's most powerful nation when ben, uh, David Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister of Israel, he's the one who declared Israel a state on May the 14th, 1948. And the Americans, now here's what's interesting, the American State Department advised Truman not to endorse the proclamation as it would bring trouble. Even his Secretary of State, George Marshall, remember the Marshall Plan, some of you might remember that, said that he would oppose Truman and resign. But none of this dissuaded President Truman. Because he happened to have a lifelong Jewish friend, and because this friend had arranged a meeting with Truman and Chaim Weizmann, you know, the chemist that we just talked about, he, against his own State Department, President Truman recognized Israel as a nation just 11 minutes after Ben-Gurion declared that they were a nation on May the 14th, 1948. 
It's incredible. Like, uh, the reason I'm telling you this is because just like God superintended all these details to bring about the birth of Israel, he has been superintending the details of the re rebirth of Israel in a similar fashion. Well, then came, this is my last one, is the Israeli War of Independence of 1948. And while Israel accepted the UN partition, the Arabs in Palestine and the surrounding Arab states rejected it. And on May the 15th, the very next day, five nations, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq, invaded the land to annihilate Israel. Asham Pasha, the Secretary General of the Arab League, declared their intention. I'm just, just one quote from what he said, but he said, this will be a war of extermination. And while the Arabs had already had ready armies trained by the British, the Jewish uh, army, or the Haganah, as they were called, only had 18,000 fighters who had no combat experience. Remember, they were refugees. They, they, weren't, a they weren't an organized nation. They, they didn't have armies. They didn't have anything. And um, I've read some books on that. Fascinating. I wrote a paper on it years ago. Uh, fascinating story. And uh, so while the Arabs had arms, and an arms embargo was placed on Israel, and they, they could only smuggle in old weapons. They had no cannons or tanks. And on the eve of the war, the chief of operations, Eagle Yadin, told Ben-Gurion that they only had a 50-50 chance of surviving. By a miracle, they survived 10 months of fierce fighting. Anyone who could hold a gun was given a gun. And they fought. Men, women, teens, thousands. And when it was over, thousands of Jewish refugees migrated from around the world back to their homeland. They rebuilt the ancient cities and towns and villages. Deserts began to bloom. And the greatest prophetic fulfillment of modern times happened before our eyes. It's phenomenal. It's a great modern sign that Messiah, Jesus, will return to the land because Jesus said this. He said, I tell you, he was speaking to Jerusalem, he had just said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those who... Um, were sent to you. He said, for I tell you, Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, Israel has to be in the land in order for him to return. And they are back in the land. Amen? Yeah. Never in history has a nation been so completely decimated, its people scattered to the ends of the earth and ceaselessly persecuted in those lands and then come back to life after two millennia? It's a miracle. It is a true modern-day miracle. Was the return of man or God? The covenant said it would happen. We've looked at that. The prophets said it would happen. Jesus said it would happen. The apostles, which we didn't get a chance to look at today, said it would happen. Only God could have orchestrated all these details. But with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he gathered them from the ends of the earth. 
just as he promised. But the question is, why? That's the question. Not whether he did it. He did it. But why did he do it? Apparently, from what Scripture tells us, from what God continually over and over said, it's so that he could bless the nations through Israel. That includes you and me. That includes Western nations. And it includes the Arab Muslim nations as well. And next week, we'll discuss what that blessing exactly is. We've looked at some of the blessings they've been to the nations. Here's a personal lesson that I want to leave with you as well. God orchestrated the events of Joseph's life as bad as it seemed in order to give birth to Israel so that you and I could be saved. When, when Joseph was going through all that stuff, rejected by his family, they wanted to kill him, his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, placed in an Egyptian dungeon, and when he helped the butler and the baker, they forgot about him. You think he needed inner healing? Huh? And all the while, with all that stuff in his life, God was working out a grand plan for you and me. Amen? That's what he was doing. As bad as the circum, uh, circumstances are in your life, and, by, and not just orchestrating their birth, but the rebirth, but as bad as circumstances are in your life right now, God is orchestrating them in your life as well. And for his purposes, for his purposes, he's working all things together for good to those who love him. Can you trust him in the dark? Can you trust him in the dark in your life right now? If his, his eye isn't just on the nations, in Matthew 6 he says his eye is also on the sparrow. And he says, aren't you much more valuable than a sparrow? If he cares about the nations and he cares about the sparrow, the little itty-bitty sparrow, and takes care of that, don't you think he wants to take care of you? He won't abandon you. He won't leave you alone. He's working things out for his purposes in your life, as bad as they may seem. Trust Him. Trust Him.